What can I control right now while I'm hurting terribly in this workout or this race? I can control getting through this rep. I can control like my effort in this rep is going to be solid. And then I'll tackle that next step or in bigger life things. It's like, what can I control now? And if I don't have control of it, like find a way to exist peacefully in it and preserve like some sanity and happiness through that. Season eight premiere. (laughs) What is going on, everyone? Emily Abadi here coming to you live from the AG studio. You are listening to Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential. And of course, have some fun along the way. All right, some fast facts about the show. If you are new to Hurdle, first of all, welcome. You are now officially, it's official, (laughs) a hurdler. The show, it comes out three times a week. And although there are 186, as of today, numbered episodes in this feed, there are a total of, I cannot believe I'm saying this, 417 in the collection. (laughs) On Wednesdays, I release episodes that I refer to as hurdle moments. And these are, think of them as snackable content on all sorts of topics in the wellness space, ranging from how to better take care of your dental or sexual health to how to get out of a funk, how to maintain boundaries, and so much more. On Fridays, you will be greeted with a five-minute Friday, which is basically me reflecting on stuff that's going on in my life and answering listener questions, a quick hit, to take you into the weekend. As for me, Emily Abadi, I'm a 33-year-old journalist and wellness expert bringing you this content from my Brooklyn studio. Born and raised in Connecticut, I have lived in New York for 11 years now. Uh, Crazy to me that that's even a thing. And relevant to the show, I went through a major weight loss transformation in college, which you can hear all about, as well as a lot more on my backstory in episode one, which I will link in the show notes. Through that journey, I learned to love running, and I'm now a 10-time marathoner, a UESCA certified run coach, certified personal trainer, and I also hold a level one precision nutrition certification. Now, while I am not actively using many of those certifications in terms of working one-on-one with clients, I do use all the education that I learned in getting those certs to better inform my conversations with the experts that I have here on the show. All right, okay, enough about me. We are here for episode 186, the season eight premiere, and I am chatting with Emma Coburn. She is an Olympian, a world champion in the steeplechase, and we had the chance to catch up when she was in town recently over NYC Marathon Weekend. In today's episode, we talk about the fact she didn't truly love running at first and what changed her attitude toward the sport. She also talks to me about the impact that team has had on her life, and we unpack what it's like to train with all of her best friends over on Team Boss in Colorado, plus what it's like to be married to your coach, and we get into a lot of tough stuff as well. Now, despite being favorited to come back home with a medal this year in the Olympics, Emma came up short, and we talk about 
the why. We kind of unpack that. We talk about how she navigated the emotions of that. And there were certainly many. And on the topic of hard stuff and emotional things, Emma talks to me about how her and her family have been doing since her mom was diagnosed with cancer in December 2019. Emma's a light. She's honestly a woman after my own heart with her optimistic, no BS attitude, making the conscious choice every day to wake up and choose joy, even when things feel hard and take ownership over her circumstance. I really, really appreciate that about her. Thanks, Sam, for opening up to me. I know that you being open and honest with all of us, all of the hurdlers, it's going to help a lot of people. Make sure you are following along with the show over on social media. It's at Hurdle Podcast. A welcome on to Nicole, who is now going to be helping me over on that front. And I'm over on social as well. I'm over at Emily Abadi. We also have a weekly hurdle newsletter, which I would love for you to subscribe to. You can do that by clicking on over to the show notes. And if you have a question for me, I am all ears. I would love to hear it. You can ask it of me by again, heading over to the show notes and leaving me a voice message. I could answer it in an upcoming episode. I can't believe we're here. It's been a fun time, a long time. It feels like it's happened in a blink of an eye and that I've also been doing this forever. So thank you, all of you, for encouraging me to show up, to work hard, and to keep going. The last thing I want to throw into the mix here, I am hosting two goal-setting workshops in December to talk about your big hopes and dreams for 2022 and beyond. I would love to see you there. For more details on all of that, again, you know where to find it in the show notes. With that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I am sitting down with Emma Coburn. She is, oh my God, I feel like she needs no introduction. An Olympian, an Olympic bronze medalist, a world champion, steeplechaser. How you doing? I'm great. Happy to be chatting in your very beautiful podcast studio. It's like, yeah, I'm just like looking over your shoulder out the window. It's so gorgeous. Admiring the New York views Mm -hmm. here. Well, I couldn't be happier to have you here in person. And honestly, this is like, this was the purpose of getting this space. And now I'm finally being able to like use it for what it was intended for to like have guests and interview IRL. And I'm just like holding on to these moments. It's it's great. I'm very happy we're here together. <laughs> I don't know if you will recall this, but I had a laugh to myself because we were both in Chicago for the marathon and you were on a bike and I saw you go by me and I was just like, Emma. And then I was like, she has no clue who you are. <laughs> I was in Chicago cheering for my teammate, Emma Bates, another Emma, and was riding around Chicago on an e-bike like a maniac. So (laughs) I don't recall anything other than cheering for her. And was yeah, I was just a freak. I was breaking traffic laws. I was being reckless and just obsessed with the mission of cheering for my friend. So um, I don't remember that, but I don't, I don't remember much from the day other than just like being a maniac. I probably would have blacked out like in that moment, seeing how amazing her performance was as well. But I was also just there to cheer that weekend and I 100% lost my voice. It, cheering for marathons is so much fun. Any, I think it's more fun than running. Well, I've never run one, but I can only assume. <laughs> um, but it's so great to just see you you witness someone's work for months and months and then to see it not sometimes it pays off and they do really great. But even if it's a bad day for them, like just see their 
effort. It's so cool. And then I also love watching the people that are running four, five, six hours out there just grinding for themselves. Oh, and that's so cool too. I was standing. We started We started early on, like I want to say the 10K, and then we ended up moving to the 40K point. And if you want to see like the entire range of human emotion, go stand at the 40K of a marathon. I think that's like mile 24 and a half. We saw this one man just fall over and start crawling for like 100 yards. He didn't want anybody's help. He just wanted to keep going forward. He he was like completely broken and oh my God, just insanity, insanity. Yeah. I watch those moments and I'm like, good for you. I see your effort. I applaud you, but I don't want that to be me. Like you're not <laughs> making the marathon look fun. <laughs> you're like, this is why I still haven't done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> do you ever think you'll do something like that? I mean, never say never, but it, it's not on my bucket list of a, a thing that I am desperate to have in my career. Yeah. But uh, you know, eventually I'll phase out of the track and we'll see what happens after that. But for the foreseeable future, no. <laughs> Staying on the track. So I know that you didn't initially gravitate toward running at all. So talk to me about your experience uh, from the get-go when it came to lacing up and getting out there. Yeah, I hated running. I only signed up for track because my siblings did, my older siblings, and we had a rule that you just had to do sports year round. And so that was the track was the only spring sport my school offered. So in middle school, my brother signed up. So my sister signed up and I signed up and I didn't love it. As we all know, running is hard and the combination of like the physical pain and like enduring that for several minutes, it was hard. Um, So I didn't love that. And then also as I got better and was winning races, I didn't love that pressure that I was putting on myself and that expectation. And then transitioning basically not until like the end of my junior year of high school, I really still was terrified of it. Like I cried on the starting line of the state cross country meet my junior year because it was so overwhelming, the stress, um, And then in high school, I met my husband, Joe, who's my coach now, and he loved running and he thought it was so cool and he loved working hard and loved the opportunities that it would give him and would just kind of call me out when I was like overthinking it and be like, well, why did you get so stressed? It's not a big deal. Like it's just running. You do it every day. And if you don't do well, it's not a big deal. And he really started like convincing me that running was cool and that it's worth the pain and effort. And thank God, because then I ended up running in college and, you know, the rest is kind of history for me, but really didn't love it at all. Really didn't love it. Luckily, I met a boy who thought it was cool and (laughs) I had a crush on him. So it, you know, worked out. When you stuck with it when you were younger and like you were called crying on that starting line, what was it that kept you going back to it besides that you were good at it? Like there must have been something that you enjoyed besides just winning races. When I was young, it truly was that I liked winning races and that I had like made a promise to my parents and my teammates that I would be there and participate and show up. And so like when I give my word that I'm going to do something that like matters, like if we make a dinner plan and then you cancel on me, I'm like, uh, what? Like that, that was our plan. We, we had, we promised each other we would do that. (laughs) And so 
just the commitment I had to like the team and the coaching and the, um, my parents of like, this is what, you know, I'm on the track team. So I have to go to practice every day. That was really why I did it. Um, but zero to do with my own personal love of it. Yeah. Um, and then as I got older and especially once I got to college, I, the summer before college was the first time that I remember going on runs and being happy and recognizing for the first time, like, wow, this is actually like nice going on a five mile run on a trail in paradise in Colorado is like pretty cool. And it's so beautiful. And look what my body can do. That was right before college that I first had those moments of feeling really in my own space, happy on a run. And then that grew and grew over time. But even when I was a freshman, I remember my dad just said, okay, give it six months. And if you hate running in college, like you can, if you're okay, you can quit. We're all going to be okay with that. So even like going into college, I was like, okay, just give it six months. We'll see what happens. And luckily, you know, I love the team. I love the coaches. I love the competitive environment and I stuck with it. But (laughs) yeah, I was late to the love of truly, you know, running in itself. I'll never forget. I went to Nike cross nationals a few years ago and I, wasn't really an athlete in high school myself. I had dabbled in volleyball, but then wasn't fast enough to make the volleyball team the second year, which in retrospect, like, why are we deciding whether or not people can make a volleyball team by running a mile (laughs) in under 10 minutes? I'm unsure, but I wasn't super involved in sport. But I remember uh, when I went to Nike Cross Nationals, like how beautiful it was to see the relationships literally just solidified in sweat these young women coming into their own and really supporting one another. For you, did you make good friends right off the bat in running? Because I know, I mean, not to skip forward too much, but right now you have such a stellar squad surrounding you. So many of these relationships that you've garnered through becoming a runner and making it a part of your everyday. I have always been very reliant on the people around me to create a good environment for happiness and success. So for most of my life, that was like my parents. Um, I was really, really shy as a kid, so didn't like like making friends until I was, you know, probably middle school. Um, so like as a little kid, like my parents were my people, and then my siblings and my friends, my boyfriend, um, and yeah, college teammates and like whoever your tribe is. It's so that's so kind of overused as a saying, but it's true. Like whoever your tribe is really can change your life. And so I've always relied so heavily and been really intentional about creating a group of people around me and selecting the people that I choose to hang out with who make me the best version of myself. So in college cross country, I loved the team. I loved both the the guys and the girls. We were super close. I loved that camaraderie you get when you're training for, you know, a cross country race together and racing together. Um, so that, that team environment, it makes the work and the hard stuff about running so much easier. It's like you're sharing your burden with everyone and you're, you're in the painful grindy moments of a workout together and it's less lonely and you don't feel sorry for yourself because everyone's doing it together. So yeah, team is super important and it's definitely a big part of what keeps me constantly fueled and happy in Mm. 
the sport yeah. is those people. And I mean, what's that saying? You're a sum of the like eight people or whatnot that you mm-hmm. surround yourself with. It's interesting to me hearing that you were shy when you were younger. I feel like there are probably people listening to this right now that definitely feel a bit introverted and may want to get more involved in community or reach out to new friends, especially via sport and don't exactly know the right way to go about it. Do you have any advice for them on how to maybe step out of that comfort zone a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely, my shyness went away because a boy I had a crush on in fifth grade liked the class clown girl. And I was like, oh, he likes her and she's goofy and loud. Okay, I should be like that. And then immediately (laughs) I was like, wait, this is so much more fun being social and having friends and not being scared. And also like realizing for the first time, like no one cares what you do. As in like all of the, my shyness and insecurity and whatever it is that makes you feel more intimidated by like reaching out to people and being outgoing. Like that's all just your own stuff that you're seeing. No one cares. Everyone, if you're happy and you're kind to people, like people will give that back to you. So my transition to, you know, from being not shy to outgoing was, uh, because I had a crush on someone who was, (laughs) you know, liked outgoing people. So I can't really give great advice. Um, in that regard. But I do think sport, to your point, is a great unifier and joining a run club or, you know, going to a running store and talking to the people that work there about like, oh, hey, like I'm just getting into running. Do you have any advice? And like making connections in that space. I think that is where we find a lot of common ground and a lot of like a deep bond that you can form with people going on a hard run with someone you'll learn so much more about them than like going to seven dinners, you know, like you really connect on a deeper level. So sport, I think is such a great way to really get out of your shell a little bit. I feel like like three or four years ago, the term like sweat working came to be. Mm -hmm. And it was like everyone, especially, I mean, living here in New York, it was like everyone started going to boutique fitness classes for like work events. It was like, oh, instead of going to happy hour, let's all go to a spin class or let's all go to this hit studio. And it was like really fun and it still can be very fun, but it got to be like very exhausting. (laughs) A lot of working out. (laughs) A lot of working out just trying to like, you know, because exactly you break down that like comfort immediately when you're like put in this like semi-vulnerable position with somebody else whether or not you're chasing like your max potential, you're doing something that definitely puts you in a different light than they probably see you when you have the opportunity to be like a little bit more buttoned up. And and running specifically really like breaks breaks those barriers down. It makes you very vulnerable. Like my teammates see me at my worst, not just like, of course, like no makeup out of bed, like not looking my best, but they see me like down in the dumps, the worst races, the worst workouts. And I see them that way. And we're there for each other to pick each other up, to remind each other of all the good and all the good work. And it's really powerful when you can just be your absolute worst self and have friends in a community and training partners and teammates that like see that love you anyway and can like build you up back out of that. It's really powerful. It's so powerful. So for you in college, having a team starting to really fall in love with running, talk to me about when you maybe started to realize that this wasn't just going to be something that you did for that time in college. I remember I ran in 2011 
I ran the, at the time was called the World A Standard. It was a time that if you ran that, you were eligible to compete at the World Championships. You still had to finish top three for your country at your trials, but that time made you at least like eligible to participate. And I remember I was at Peyton Jordan 2011 and I ran the time and I, and I won the race and I was like, huh, I'm the fastest American right now in this event. Huh? Like that means, Hmm. Like it, it clicked that I was like, Oh wow, I'm not me making a world team, me making an Olympic team the following year while in college. Like that's all very much in my grasp. And I was really lucky to have coaching and like people around me that just like every, like the expectations were just always like a step far ahead of where I was at that moment. And so it wasn't ever like, I didn't show up to campus and my coaches say, you're going to make an Olympic team in four years. But cause that would have been overwhelming and unachievable in my head. But I had a coach who said, you know, you're going to run 455 in the mile this year. And I remember thinking like, that is so fast. I cannot believe that. And just little baby steps. And so in 2011, when I ran that time, I was like, huh, wow, this is like that, that moment of realizing what is open and like me being a professional and me making teams like that's now the stratosphere that is, if I want to, I can do that. But because I had just been taking these little baby steps of improvement, it was also like, oh yeah, now that makes a lot of sense, of course. And now the next race, I'm going to run five seconds faster and I'm going to win this race and I'm going to be the top American at the world champs. And just these, of course, achievements that, that were just little steps of the next goal seems so logical, but that was definitely the first time that I was like, oh, I could be a professional runner. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, professional runner option A, what had you majored in in college? I majored in marketing and did like a minor in real estate, but honestly, my whole life, I just wanted to be a mom. That was like growing up. That's like all I said I wanted to be. So yeah. I would still like to be a mom, um, down the road. I'm not, I'm not doing that yet, but um, so I was just like, I don't really know what I want to do. I'll be in the business school and have options and, uh, figured something in real estate or something in the business school I would figure out, but I'm glad running worked <laughs> out for me because, you know, I didn't have a clear, I didn't grow up being like, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon. Like I didn't have the super clear job path that I was seeking out. And so, yeah, it worked. I think usually when someone says like, I can't wait to be a mom, it's because they had a really great mom growing up, like a really great role model. So talk to me about your mom and how she's played a really big role in your life. She is, my mom is just the best. I, like <laughs> I said, I was really shy when I was little and my sister's my best friend, but like she was social and had her own little friends. And like my mom probably like all my memories from before I was eight years old is just me hugging my mom's leg. Like she was my person and I, um, I was her little shadow, like never left her alone. And so very, very lucky to have, you know, a very attentive, loving, funny, um, mom. And she's, I think she's just such a good caretaker and homemaker and, but also is like, cute and sassy and has good style and is funny. And, um, so seeing her model, like motherhood and being a wife was like, that is the coolest thing ever. I want to be exactly like you. You are amazing. You're so cool. And so definitely to your point, that's like 
she made that like this ultimate role of that's what I want to be. That's who I want to be. And, you know, then I went to college and had to cook for myself. And I was like, wait, mom makes this look so much easier. Like, <laughs> this is so much harder. Like, how does she fold clothes so much better than me? Or, you know, but it's then she's always also, folding clothes, It's always folding clothes. And then my mom's also like super athletic and she didn't do any sports in college, but like she's climbed all the 14ers in Colorado and like skis and hikes and does like so many fun adventures, like mountain biking. And so it's also like, oh, you can also be super adventurous and fit and athletic and, um, pursue your goals in that way as well. So she's really a special lady. A she's special awesome. Lady. I wore a lot of hats. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Primarily I've- like keep your leg available for Emma to hug at all times from <laughs> 1990 to 1997. <laughs> primarily. That's the yeah. primary hat. Primary <laughs> pair of pants anyway. So you, you make your first Olympic team. Let's talk about that. Do you remember where you were when that happened? In so in Eugene, Oregon, 2012, the Olympic trials, I had to finish top three in my event. Um, and so for track, it's just one day. You have to be perfect. It's not like the US ski team that's like, here's the team. I think that's how they do it. I don't, I'm, I'm <laughs> example. So for example, but so <laughs> you have to be perfect on that day and you have to finish top three. And so I won the year prior and made the world championship team and was the top American that year. And so that was 2011. And then in 2012, it was, I was winning everything. And again, the top American, but like, you actually have to like get it done that day. Um, and I don't know why, but I'm sure it's coaching and support and family and Joe, but like, I was just very confident that like, this is just another race. Like it's a 400 meter track. I'm going to go out and do my job. I wasn't overwhelmed with, this is the, Olympic trials. Like this is the moment. Um, and I was just very calm and focused and ran my race and won. And that making your first Olympic team is so special because for the rest of your life, you're an Olympian. And that's like Emma Coburn comma Olympian. Like it's just always part of your bio. It's part of what defines you professionally. Um, and it also helps people like understand what we do, you know, Mm -hmm. of like, you're a professional runner. Oh, cool. Like, what does that mean? You're like, no, you're an Olympian. Like people, people who don't run or don't know anything about track can like get that (laughs) a little bit more. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, it was just really special and yeah, I was still in college. I had one more year left in school and just was yeah, 21 at the Olympics and went out there and was the top American and made the final. And again, just didn't put the moment of the Olympics, didn't put that weight ahead of where I knew I was of like, it's just another 400 meter track. Mm. I steeple all the time. I've done these workouts. I'm going to go out and run my PR. Um, and just stayed really present in that and less freak out about like, Oh wow, this is the Olympics. Um, (laughs) but yeah, it was, it was really cool. I think before we keep going, so I don't have to do this in a lackluster way in the intro for those that don't fully comprehend what it means to race the steeplechase. Maybe you should just like give that a quick explanation. Okay. The steeplechase (laughs) is 3000 meters of hurdling it on the track. So it's seven and a half laps. And each lap we have four hurdles, which are 30 inches, like about the size of the length of your legs, a little shorter. And okay, let's like just pause there. Cause like you probably have some long legs. Yeah. But okay. <laughs> I should stick. say for, for yes, it's a, <laughs> it's, it's 30 inches. I'm not going to assume how long everyone's legs are, but it's 30 <laughs> inches. 
Um, and there's four hurdles and then a water jump, which is 30, a 30 inch high barrier that you jump off of and you clear like a 10 foot long water pit. It's a very bizarre event, but it combines like the, the endurance needed to like run a good 5k with like the explosiveness and coordination and strength needed for like a field event. So it's really fun. And I grew up playing a lot of sports. And so like the approach of the water jump is like going for an approach in volleyball or going to do a layup. Like it's very similar footwork. And so it just clicked right away for me. I loved it right away. I was good at it right away. And yeah, it's wild. If you've never watched it, go ahead and you know, YouTube it. It's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty wild. Oh man. Oh man. And well, we're running like, like four forty-five mile pace while cash. we're doing it. No big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's like totally normal for everyone. <laughs> everyone listening to this is like, I can like walk down the stairs in four minutes and 45 seconds yeah, but yeah. <laughs> to run a mile. <laughs> yeah. Pace at that. And, Two miles while yeah. jumping over stuff. Yeah. It's interesting. No big yeah. deal. Okay. So now that we have a better understanding of that, mm-hmm. I just wanted to make sure we got that out of the way. You you mentioned that your approach at that first Olympics was like, this is just another opportunity for me to show up at the track. Now, I would assume as you progressed in your career and became more well-known, gained more and more people, more and more eyes on you, were you able to keep that perspective as you kept on your way? I I think so. Yeah. I've, I've been... Um... I've been used to having like a target on my back or being the favorite in the, in my event, but just the scale has changed, you know? So like at first it was like, oh, the local meet, Emma, you're, you're going to win. And it's like, so I was used to having the expectation to, to be great. And the, the pond just got way bigger, but it scaled up with me as like, I grew into it appropriately. Like I didn't, have an insane random rogue race that like I was super young and I won the Olympics and I like all of a sudden was like, Oh my gosh, what is this pressure? Like I very much grew up and grew into that expectation and pressure pretty naturally. So like, you know, in 2010, it's like, Oh, Emma can win conference. Oh, okay. So that expectation of saying, you know, I wasn't, I didn't win nationals that year, but like I was used to having that expectation of this is your race. You're going to go out and you're going to execute this and win. And then since 2011, basically since 2011, I've either for the last 10 years, I've either been ranked number one in the U S or won the U S championship. Um, and so I'm, I'm used to having that within the U S a, that as my expectation. And so scaling it to the world stage, I don't win many races globally, but, um, I always, say I can, you know, I always say like, all right, I can, I can win this and I can be in the top three or I can be in the front. And, um, but that expectation and pressure just kind of like, it felt appropriate given how I kind of aged into it and it scaled up with me. Speaking of scaling, bring us to Rio. Yeah. So Rio was a a similar, um, experience on the track as Tokyo as sorry as London with me just saying you know this is another race this is 400 meters and just go out and execute my plan but London it was still like I walked the opening ceremonies and I stayed in the village and I did more of like the Olympic like vibe um Rio was like a work trip I I didn't stay in the village I didn't do opening ceremonies I was there to win a medal and like didn't do any of the 
fun, jazzy stuff. So that was the only difference, but it felt like a regular track meet of like, I'm flying, you know, across the world and I'm going (laughs) to line up and do this race and go and execute it. And, um, for a lot of the race, I was in fourth, I came in ranked like third or fourth, but like a medal was definitely possible. Um, and I ran a lot of the race in fourth. And I remember at one point thinking fourth in the world, that's pretty great. You know, like that's good. And then the moment that thought crossed my mind, I was like, oh no. And I went and like chased down third and then I was kicking hard and almost got second, but didn't, didn't, you know, lost second place by like, you know, a half second or something. But, um, I ended up in third and crossing the finish line as a Olympic bronze medalist is like so powerful, so special. My family was there. That was also the first medal I have ever won on a global stage. So when you win a global medal, you get to hold the American flag up over your head and do a lap of honor. And that was just so powerful. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of years of hard work go into those moments. And as I experienced in Tokyo, spoiler alert, I know we're going chronologically, but (laughs) it didn't, I didn't get that moment. Um, and when it goes great, it feels like, like I worked so hard and this is so great to have this reward. Um, but then like I wake up the next day and I still got a train and I still got a race. And like, that was true after Tokyo too. Like whatever happens, you still are continuing to seek better than you were the day before. And so that was a really special moment, but continued on training and like, you know, then the next year won the world championship gold. And that was, again, like getting that flag and getting, being the best in the world on that day was like so cool and loved that so much. But, um, (laughs) you know, but just like we're always working. And so even when you have the best days of your life at work, you're still trying to repeat that and be better and be faster and find the next frontier that you can, you know, push yourself to be great. You know, I've been thinking about that a lot lately because I, I mean, I'm nowhere near an elite runner, but I uh, I had a couple of really good marathons over the last couple of years. And so I asked myself, like, do I actually want to do that again? Like, I mean, do I want that feeling again? Of course. But can I be content with like those being the best? And it's an interesting like question to ask yourself, right? Because I think in our gut, like we are exactly what you're saying, like always chasing that like next best feeling or to replicate a really great moment. But maybe there's a point that like you've just got to be like, hey, like those were really great moments. And like, I'm going to find really great moments maybe in some other way. I totally agree. I remember after the Olympics, I um, left my coaches from college who who coached me through the Olympics. And Joe, my fiance started, he was my fiance then. Now he's my husband. He started coaching me. And I remember thinking and talking with him of like, if I never run a step faster again or win another medal, like I am happy. Like I am happy with my career. I am proud of what I've done. And to your point, like finding joy and, and those, in those good moments and reflecting on them and be like, that was great. And like, I'm not going to be obsessive about, um, finding that perfection again, but like it's healthy to stop and smell the roses and celebrate wins along the way. And like, feel gratitude in that. But then it's also, I think, human nature and certainly within athletes to like seek 
self-improvement. And so if seeking self-improvement doesn't result in like one perfect day, that's fine. But like trying to guide your life in a way that you are trying to improve and you're trying to be better and you're not just like like thrown in the towel, whatever it is you're doing, I think is important. But I agree, like finding peace and happiness in those those good happy moments, your fast marathons or my medals, like those, that's important to just be grateful for what those were and right. be happy and smile when you think of it. Yeah. I had a psychology expert. Her name is Dr. Cheyenne Bryan on the show recently. And she talked to me about why it is to remember why it is that we set goals. Right. And oftentimes the pursuit of the goal is we're doing this because we're doing something that's supposed to bring us joy. And Sometimes because of just like getting wrapped up in life and what's going on, we kind of lose sight of that, right? And if you're not having fun going after your goals, then like what's the point of going after these goals in the first place? Because in my mind, anyway, like life's too short. But I do think that it's super easy to get wrapped up in that. And then you're like, hmm, wow, what just happened for the last – like you blink your eyes and it's like all this stuff just happened and like did you even enjoy the process? Totally. And I think that's what's fun about the team of women I train with now is like – we don't have I'm I'm sponsored by New Balance, but we don't have a group sponsor. So it's just a group of independent women who have like decided that we want to train together. We want to have Joe as our coach. We want to live in Boulder and work hard together. And because there is that like independence and choice involved, like we are so happy because you're every day choosing that like I want to be here and like this is something no one's forcing me to do this. This is something that I'm choosing. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying this process. And like whatever that end result of that goal is, like we win some, we lose some. Like we are enjoying that process so much Mm -hmm. and we're so happy in that and that like every day we're making a choice to show up for each other that we're, we're all generally thriving, you know? And like, again, the races might be bad or they might be great, but that process, like you're saying, is so it's important to find that happiness in it. And to like come back to that conversation before about the importance of the people that you surround yourself with is really important. Plus the idea of that. Um, I like want to note like the perspective, right? Like we're all generally thriving, but we're coming off of like for some in Olympics, I didn't go as you had hoped. And I know like Aisha is coming back from this injury and like, there's so many things that you all are dealing with, but together, as long as you have that support, it's like a community greatness. Yeah. And we, we, there's never a moment that 10 out of 10, everyone is perfect and happy and healthy and running their PRs. It that's just life. You're never going to sync up perfectly where everyone's best moments sync up. But the nice thing is like we, you have someone on who's your friend and teammate who's thriving. And that if you're having a harder time, you can be like one, like my time will come to, I can like look at that person and be like, that might be me soon. Like I can Mm -hmm. look to that as like an inspiration, but then you can also just take yourself fully out of it and be like, look how hard she worked. I witnessed it look how smart she was in that race. And this is so beautiful and amazing for her. And I just want to worship her (laughs) and support her. And so it's, it's really nice when you have a group of people who you yeah genuinely love and care about that when you're having your worst moments, you can just look to them and their good moments and be like, it's all fine. It's all good. Taking a break from today's episode to talk to you about my sponsors. First up, Hyper Ace. 
one of my favorite Hyperice products, the Normatec 2.0 Pro Boots. Now they are the perfect recovery massage that helps me increase circulation to my sore muscles as well as reduce pain and soreness. I call them my on-call personal masseuse. Plus, I love that you can customize each session with their seven different intensity levels. And don't think that just because you're not a professional athlete, hi, I am not, <laughs> that your legs don't deserve a little extra loving and that you can't benefit from owning a pair yourself. Now, of course, I've got to mention some of my other favorite Hyperize products like the Hypervolt 2.0 and the Viper 3. So many great options, many of which are on major sale right now, a sale that will not last long. Words of caution. This stuff makes great gifts, especially with pricing like $100 off Normatec packages, $20 off Hypervolt 2 and Go. That's their cute little travel size Hypervolt and $50 off Hypervolt 2 Pro. Do what you love more by heading on over to hyperice.com and make sure you get your orders in ASAP since the shipping cutoff is coming right on up. Again, that is hyperice.com. Next up, I want to give some love to Daily Harvest. Now, oh man, Daily Harvest, the holidays, all the get togethers, the gift planning. And then in the midst of all this, there is trying to juggle work too. Listen, my schedule is always thrown out of whack during this time of year, but even when there is this much change in my routine, there is one thing I never have to think twice about, and that is what I'm eating in my day. Daily Harvest has my back with delicious, easy-to-make food that I know is good for me. They deliver delicious harvest bowls, flatbreads, smoothies, and more, all built on organic fruits and vegetables right to my door, and they all stay conveniently fresh in my freezer. I lately cannot get enough of their broccoli and cheese harvest bowl. Also, oh my God, their artichoke and spinach flatbread. I add a little bit of extra mozzarella, sometimes some cherry tomatoes. Chef's kiss. It is delicious. And the harvest bowl is also perfect comfort food meals on these chilly, chilly days. Again, so many options here. You have got to get in on Daily Harvest. It is a lifesaver. Head on over to dailyharvest.com and enter code HURDLEPOD, that is HURDLEPOD, to get up to $40 off your first box. Again, use code HURDLEPOD at checkout for up to $40 off your first box at dailyharvest.com. That's dailyharvest.com. And last but not least, my friends at Gooder. Gooder, in my opinion, is probably one of the best stocking stuffers <laughs> there is. Now, if you're not familiar with Gooder, Gooder makes no scratch, polarized, fun sunglasses that start at just $25 each, which is phenomenal. Honestly, I've tried my fair share of mega expensive frames and I still reach for these sunglasses, one of my zillion styles that I own, each and every time I leave my apartment, whether I am heading out for a run, they 100% stay put, or I am like sprinting to meet a girlfriend for brunch or something. Like I said, so many style options, one for every taste. I am obsessed with my $9 pour overs, but again, the site has so many different looks to fit everyone on your holiday shopping list. Head on over to gooder.com slash hurdle and use code hurdle15 to get 15% off your next purchase. Again, head on over to gooder.com, that's G-O-O-D-R.com slash hurdle and use code hurdle15 to get 15% off your next purchase. You talked about 
how beautiful it was to be able to have your family with you in Rio. Now, I know um, a lot happened for you between Rio and this year's games in Tokyo, aside from COVID, which is like a whole other thing. But talk to me a little bit about what was going on in your life in between those two Olympic games. I had a lot of changes. Um, I changed groups. My husband became my coach, team boss. Our team grew. I won another medal. I won a silver medal at the... um, Doha World Championships in 2019. And then that end of 2019, like the world just turned to garbage. Um, My mom got diagnosed with stage four colon cancer in December of 2019. Then obviously like COVID happened for everyone. Where were you in December 2019 when you found out about her situation? My sister texted me asking if I was alone. I was at our gym office and... I was like with some of my teammates and she was like, all right, just go outside. I'm going to call you. And she called me and, and she told me, and I just remember, yeah, like sitting on the curb outside of our office, just crying. And Joe came outside and sat with me and then, you know, just ran back in the office and grabbed my crap and left. And then I was in Boulder for a few, it was, it was right before Christmas. It was December. I found out, um, December 14th or 15th. Um, and I just like was here for a few more days in Boulder and then went to Crested Butte for the holidays. So I got to see my mom, you know, three or four days later, which was good. And at the time we definitely thought it was like, okay, she's going to have chemo for six months and then like everything's going to be fine. And, you know, over the years we've learned it's coming up on two years since her diagnosis. And, uh, it's just a lot more, complicated and lengthy and has had a lot of like really high highs along the way too. Um, and some obviously like some bummer moments as well, but that was a pretty, uh, rough time for sure. And especially like right before the holidays when you're just like wanting to be, um, it just brings out all the feels, you know, it just brings out more of the sentimental gushy side and everyone. And so that was a hard, that was definitely a hard time, but, um, I, you know, luckily was able to just go see her pretty soon after. And then the perk, weird perk of COVID is I got to spend most of 2020 with her living at home. And that was really special too. That's like one of the weird high, you know, weird highlights that came out of it is my sister moved to Crested Butte to be with my mom. I spent most of 2020 in Crested Butte with my mom. Um, So there are some like beautiful moments in it as well, even though it's, you know, all very terrible. (laughs) When you say like high highs, like what are what's an example of a high high when someone you care about is going through chemo? I think a high high is like those just regular happy moments. Um, Like my mom, my sister and I, um, when I was no longer able to compete after Tokyo, I kept trying to train and I wanted to keep competing. And then when I finally kind of pulled the plug on that. Um, I went to Mexico with my mom and sister for a long weekend. And like, that's a high. Cause you're just, you're not thinking about cancer. You're just happy and on the beach and in the sun and joking around. So I think like making memories that are not related to her health are the real high highs. And it just, everything tastes sweeter. Everything just feels better when you get those moments, when you know that there's potentially a finite amount of that, or when there's just heaviness around a lot of other things, when you can experience those light things, they feel even lighter, even better, even funnier, even happier. All of that is just saturated so much more in joy than it was prior. 
And I would imagine the low lows, again, going back to this idea of like the things that are so out of your control uh, in those moments, you mentioned before in our conversation, just the, the importance of your support squad. Right. And I think that we can agree that whether it's, you know, going through something difficult, like your family navigating your mom's journey with cancer. We talked about the holidays, emotions running rampant during the holidays. So many breakups and family things and just like tough stuff that people go through. A lot of women would probably, I mean, kill is a strong word, but like look at your tribe and they're so envious of your support system because you guys are just like so close and have such a beautiful bond for, for those that are maybe struggling to find their own tribe. What, what do you tell them? What, what helped you home in on like the right relationships for you? You know, I think you just have to be really honest with yourself and a little bit selfish to be like, you know, identify the people that make you feel good. And also the people that you're just like, mom, I'm, I I care about you. I wish you success, but like, I'm not gonna, you can't please everyone. You can't maintain really deep, meaningful relationships with every single person you come across. And so I think, um, I was always that way just in regards, even with my running, like I was very protective of who I was surrounding myself with that, you know, they had to bring me like joy and positivity and humor. And, um, and so I've always kind of been that way. And, and the experience my family has had with my mom is no different that it's, it's those people that bring you that joy that don't make you, you know, that don't expect you to give them tremendous, input back when you're in the pits, you know, and, and I think the combination of my team, team boss, like those girls are my closest friends. They're, you know, we can chat about anything, highs, lows, silly stuff, serious stuff. And it's, that's just a really great bond. And I think finding friendships through sport is so critical for that. And it really creates these vulnerable environments that you can bond and share things with. So obviously that component of like my people in my world that those girls matter so much to me. And then, um, I just was lucky that I met my husband when I was in high school. So meeting, you know, marrying your high school sweetheart works out to where they know everything, um, good and bad. And they're just, they're just there without needing you to actually ask anything of them or ask, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's great when you know someone so deeply where they can just give you what you need and you don't even know you need it. And then the other support is, yeah, my, my family and specifically my sister, she and I are our best friends. And again, same thing as with my husband, like finding that person that you can just sit with and not have to like say anything. And you just know what each other are thinking and you can support each other without having to be over the top or dramatic. I think when someone is navigating a hard time, whether it's a breakup or family stuff or grief or loss. My biggest pet peeve is when there's someone who needs you to need them. You know, when, when they're so desperate to be your savior and they're so desperate to be your, the person who will like pick you up. And sometimes you need that. And sometimes you don't. And so if you're a friend of someone who's experiencing, um, sadness, I think it's important to like, obviously be there for them, but give them space and they'll, you know, they'll tell you if they need something or you can give them little, you know, gifts or texts or hints or whatever. But, um, I think 
finding those people who uh, know you so deeply and love you so deeply, but don't expect necessarily anything back when you're in those bad moments. Um, and I definitely yeah. have that with all my, you know, teammates and and Joe and my family. So that's been very lucky. I think the first thing to double click on there when you were talking about like knowing what you're looking for in your relationships and knowing yourself well enough and like having your own boundaries, like being able to articulate all of that stuff is really important if you want to like be able to land in on your people, your tribe, like having that like mutual understanding and like kind of like the same ideas of like what it means to be there for someone is just like so, so important. And I really respect actually what you just said about like navigating grief from a friendship POV, because I think that, you know, with that person that you were exemplifying, it's like that person, like they, their intention is to do good, but really what is necessary sometimes in our strongest friendships is to take a step back and ask, like, am I doing this because I feel like I need this? And that's like a little bit selfish. Or am I doing this because I'm truly trying to help and asking yourself, like, how can I be the best friend in this moment? And sometimes, especially with grief, it's like, people are just like trying to do the best they can to like stay above water. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think there's everyone is so different. Like my girlfriends know that I don't like gushy, uh, uh, sad face, are you doing okay? Like, I don't like that. If you want to <laughs> cheer me up, like go to brunch with me, like buy me some pancakes. That's like, everyone has their different love language or their different way of, of need. Some, some friends really just want a text to say like, I love you. I'm here for you. You know, whatever it is, every person is different. And being a great friend is like knowing how your friends tick, you know, and I've been really lucky to have, um, yeah, people around me who know how I tick and can be really supportive in, in my varying degrees of sadness or happiness or success or failures mm. or mom stuff or track stuff, whatever it is. Yeah. I've been lucky in that way. It's a choice, right? Like you choose not to play the victim or woe is me or live in this grief, but rather like celebrate the things that are and the things that you have control over. Yeah. And I think obviously there's days that it's like, oh, that really sucked. Like Tokyo, that was really hard. Or certain, certain moments in my mom's journey have been like really tough. Or, you know, when the Olympics first got po postponed in March, 2020, like, oh, that, that's a bummer. Um, there's moments that are sad and you don't have to fake that you're you're not disappointed. It's, it's, you were allowed to be sad or disappointed, but I think, um, finding ways to move on and control what you can control and find happiness is, yeah, is how the best way I've known how to cope with it. And, um, and yeah, even before my mom was sick, that's kind of what, what our life was, was, you know, through these hard times, finding the good and finding the happiness, whether it's something really small or a vacation, something bigger, you know, you got to find that happiness. When you think about uh, 2020 as a whole and the hurdle moments that it entailed, do you recall any of maybe the best advice that you got going through those difficult times to push forward? I don't have like a one liner to give you. I wish I did, but in general, yeah. Joe, both like in his role as our coach, but then also like as my husband, he was just giving the advice of like, guys, we can't freak out. We can, we can only do what we can. So 
Let's get really fit. Let's make our own races. Let's try and have fun. Let's, you know, make the most of this time. Um, and so I think thinking too far ahead, whether that's like in a race, you know, you feel bad one lap in that doesn't necessarily matter. You can't think too far ahead. Um, in life, if you think too far ahead and get anxiety about what that future stuff is, those future problems, like that's not going to be a healthy, happy way to live or exist. And so, yeah, Joe was just reminding us a lot of, you know, be in this moment, make the best out of today, this week, this month, whatever we can. We don't know what's going to happen next. Like, let's just do our best and, you know, get fit and be safe. And that's all we can do. Tokyo has come up sporadically over our conversation. Why don't you talk me through some of the other things that happened for you in 2021? 2021, I um, won my ninth U.S. championship, setting the trials record at the time. And then Tokyo did not go well. I was expected to win a medal. That was my plan. That was my goal. I was perfectly prepared. And the climate just fried me. It was really, really tough. And the stubborn athlete in me is like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And then like die. So I wasn't listening to my body as much as I should have while I was there. I was just like, I'm going to be great. And like, I don't, the fact that I'm like dying and my heart rate's super high and I'm sweating so much every day, like it doesn't matter. I'm going to be great. And turns out I died. (laughs) I was fried. And so that race was really sad and disappointing. And then I tried to come back to Colorado and get back into training. And my mind was ready. My mind was like, let's freaking go. I'm ready. But my body was like revolting. It was not into it. So you're saying like you got out there and like you realized pretty quickly you were fried, but you had a race to run. So talk to me about mentally, like where you were at and how you even managed to keep going as you pretty quickly realize that things weren't going as you had hoped. I think it's, it's so common in races that early on you feel terrible. And then the race turns out great. Like in, um, 2017, when I won the world championships, I felt like crap for the first two K and then it was like on the rails. And then, you know, when I had two laps to go, I started feeling great and had more momentum and all of that. So, there's, there's many races that like your body's not feeling it early on and you just ignore that because you push through and you've pushed through so many times to have success on the other side. So I wasn't, um, really there wasn't a point in the race, maybe until the last 500 meters that, um, I doubted that I would thrive in the end. You know, I thought I could get it back together. I thought I could start accelerating and I was, you know, doing all the mental tricks I knew how to do. I was, you know, definitely engaged like mentally. And other than, you know, for, for most of the race, I was in the pack of women that ended up winning medals. So I felt like I was going to push through not, even though physically I didn't feel great. And then, yeah, with like 600 to go or 500 to go, I just felt losing a lot of control of what my body was doing. And And the woman who was behind me at the bell with 400 to go, she ended up getting fifth. So like even had my last lap just gone a little bit better, it would have been a lot better day. But, you know, when my body was not responding and I 
you know, looked down at one point and my arm was like crooked up and I couldn't move it back to a normal running position. I was like, what is happening to my body? I just can't control anything that's happening. And then you have to jump over stuff while you're doing that. And I fell because of that. Like it's hard to jump over things when your body's not uh, listening to what your mind is telling it to do. So yeah, I mean, it was terrible. And the, my headspace though, up until, yeah, like 500 meters to go was that I believe I can, you know, do great and keep pushing and this is still going to be my day yeah. and I'm going to run strong and finish hard and, you know, maybe not win the race, but still have a good effort. So yeah, it fell apart that last lap or lap and a half. You know, it's so interesting. You said like the mental tricks that I know. And I think that so many who have similar experiences, obviously not on an Olympic stage, but where things aren't going as they would hope a lot struggle to get out of that. Like what can be at times slipping into like the self deprecation, like just like this, like what the hell is happening here? This isn't going as I would hope like just angry. So in your, let's call it like your, your mental tricks toolbox, like what do you pull out of there? Um, when like those thoughts can seep in, maybe not in this moment specifically, but just in general, I think it, it's so dependent on what stage in the race I am in. Um, you know, early on in the race, I'm just trying to ignore whatever my body's telling me and to just be mentally relaxed, be really relaxed and smooth. And if my body is like not feeling smooth and relaxed, I just tell, you know, I repeat over and over. I had like, stay relaxed, stay relaxed to just trick it. And then as the race progresses, it's, it's typically more of thinking back to past workouts or trying to break down like you know, get through this kilometer, get through the next two laps and, and really just self-talk about like the logistics of the race. There's, there's not any grand thing of, of me saying you're amazing. I believe in you. Like I'm not doing that kind of stuff, but I'm more (laughs) just like breaking down the, the logistics of it to say like, all right, you know, really strong water jump here and hoping that will kind of click me into a good rhythm. So it's, um, I've just been doing it for so many years and have had a varying degree, um, of success in races. And I've had races again, that I feel terrible and I end up thriving in or races that I feel great in, but don't have that last gear to really cross the finish line as successfully as I thought I could. Um, and I think for people who aren't, you know, competing at the Olympic level, I think it's important to remember that like, it's supposed to be uncomfortable. Running is supposed to be uncomfortable. So if you're doing a a race or a workout and you're doing some sprints or strides beforehand and you feel kind of flat or bad, like that's super common for everyone. Don't, you know, don't read too much into that. And then when you are in the hurt locker in the middle of the race, like that's what it's supposed to feel like. And it feels like that for everyone around you. And so don't feel sorry for yourself. Just push through that moment. It's funny. I mean, this is making me think of that like analogy that you hear so often when you're like a total beginner runner and we're talking about like running from like one like street lamp or street light to the next street light. And it's like, just keep going until you get to the next one. Just keep going until you get to the next one. And sooner or later, after you keep going until you get to the next one, you realize how far you've come and what a major accomplishment that is. So it's like, 
whether you're a total newbie or you're a pro like you, it's like sometimes the logistics, you know, they might seem like a little particular, but those can be like putting your thoughts into these, like just get over the next small moment and the next small moment and the next Ryan Hall has a book. I mean, run the mile you're in. That's what it's all about of like run this mile and don't worry about what's next or on the track. It's often like, all right, get through this next lap, get through this next kilometer or yeah, get to that next light post. Or sometimes if I'm like on a hard, a hard training run, it's like, all right, get to that top of the hill. Then when you're at the top, like get your heart rate down and like just having those little markers or goals definitely can help anyone. And it kind of takes your mind off of the greater, bigger question of like, is this successful? Am I worthless? Is this going to be a good day or a bad day. Like you don't have to think that that grand. You can just think more focused on like the next step ahead of you. And I would have to think that this mindset has become like very applicable for you in so many other aspects of your life as well. Yeah, I mean, I think in general I'm a pretty I don't get like rattled very easily by like big things. I get rattled when like there's a long line at the post office. Like that bothers me or like a long security line at the airport. Like that stuff bothers me, but like actual real big life stuff or racing or, um, grief or loss, whatever, all these big deal life things. Like I can usually just focus more into like, all right, what, what can I do right now or today or, what is in my control in this situation. And that brings a lot of like peace and calm and clarity. And it's definitely, yeah, reflective and running that what can I control right now while I'm hurting terribly in this workout or this race, I can control getting through this rep. I can control like my effort in this rep is going to be solid. And then I'll tackle that next step or in bigger life things. It's like, what can I control now. And if I don't have control of it, like find a way to exist peacefully in it and preserve like some sanity and happiness through that. It's a really, really good approach. I've got to ask, how is your mom doing now? She's the same, which is great. Not great. She is just having chemo every two weeks. So she is like her day to day, super energized, looks great. You would never know she's sick. She's her regular old self, but then every two weeks she has to have chemo, which obviously is challenging. She's had 31 rounds of chemo, um, and she's just the little energizer bunny. I don't know how she does it, and she's just has a great attitude. And um, But yeah, unfortunately, just has to be getting treatment all the time. Well, my uh, my thoughts and my prayers are certainly with you and your family and your mom and all of my well wishes. I uh, I often ask this question on the show and it's kind of interesting to ask you this, thinking about the things that you're not always sharing on Instagram, keeping us up to date with your training journey, 512,000 plus people keeping up with you there, seeing a runner, an athlete, a devoted partner, a training partner, a wife, a daughter, a sister. When you look in the mirror, what is it that you see looking back at you? You know, I just am Emma. So I think a lot of I don't think much about any of that stuff. You know, like it's it's fun and it's it's just like part of life and whatever. But both on track major successes, on track major failures, I just still feel like myself. And so I think I was able to bounce back pretty quickly emotionally from Tokyo because I just know who I am and what I care about and 
who, you know, the people in my life that love me for me. And so my identity is never wrapped up in my running success or my Instagram followers or anything like that, or my running failures. It's so separate from that. And that makes me, you know, I'm, I'm so passionate about my running and I think my personality, I get stronger through running and all of that. But yeah, when I look in the mirror, I definitely don't just see me, you know, just, just me, just, me, just well, a girl. <laughs> what, uh, what excites you right now? I feel just excited to be back in the rhythm of training. I think that's going to be, you know, that's getting back into the rhythm. My body's feeling good again. So just getting back into training with the team, all of us are back running together after having our fall kind of off season. Um, so that excites me just getting back with my girls working hard. All right. Em. Final question. Right now, you have an opportunity to give yourself one piece of advice during the hurdle moment, which was finding out about your mom and the difficulty you experienced back then. Looking back on that, what do you tell you? I would say a couple things. First, I would say that like cancer is complicated. I think I thought it was like, okay, you, you have like six months of chemo and you're really sick and you lose your hair and you're in a hospital and then like you're okay or you're not. But I didn't realize like, no, you just live with it for years and get treatment all the time. And you're not like, you're not like cured or not cured. It's just not as simple. And so I think I would tell her to like be patient and that like, it's not super simple and that, you know, mom's going to be sick for a long time. And then like outside of the actual like logistics of chemo and cancer, I would say, you know, just spend as much time with her as you can. That's all we can do. And yeah, taking little trips together and being home, like that's the stuff that matters. I'm so grateful for the time we had today. How do the hurdlers follow along with you? How do they keep up with you? Give me all the details. Let's see. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at Emma Coburn. You can also um, follow me on Twitter. I'm not as active there at Emma J. Coburn. And uh, yeah, I also, if you ever like want to come meet me in person every year, every year I do a 5k race for a cancer charity in my hometown. The race is called Elk Run 5k and that is Instagram at Elk Run 5k and you can come meet me. It's at the end of September in Colorado every year. So if you want to hang out in person, (laughs) come there and can't forget your cookbook. If you want to cook, if you want to, I also sell a bunch of random stuff. So, um, I love to cook. Uh, you can buy my cookbook at emmacoburn.com and I sell some other like exercise products. Yeah. Come, (laughs) come shop, shop my store. That's it. I'm over at Emily body and at hurdle podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.